All right, I want to start out by sharing a story with you guys that I read uh, from a man um, who had been on vacation and wrote about some seagulls. Those are birds. Several years ago, he writes, our family visited Niagara Falls. It was spring and ice was rushing down the river. As I viewed the large blocks of ice flowing toward the falls, I could see that there were dead fish embedded in the ice. Gulls by the score were riding down the river feeding on the fish. As they came to the brink of the falls, their wings would go out and they would escape the falls. I watched one gull which seemed to delay and wondered when it would leave. It was engrossed in the fish and when it finally came to the brink of the falls, out went its powerful wings. The bird flapped and flapped and even lifted the ice out of the water, and I thought it would escape, but it had delayed too long, so its claws had frozen into the ice. The weight of the ice was too great, and the goal plunged into the abyss. What a sad story. This bird had a choice to make. It could have let go of the fish and the ice to escape the falls, or it could give in to the temptation to have just one more bite and chance falling to its death. The bird chose to satisfy its immediate desire for food rather than having to experience hunger. The interesting thing about this particular scenario is that there were most likely plenty of fish in all of that ice, and the bird could have let go, flown around, found another piece of ice with fish, and continued eating, but it didn't. Seagulls apparently are not that smart, I guess, because the choice seems so obvious, doesn't it? At least it seems obvious when you understand the perspective of the result, which in this case was death. Thinking about this story in terms of being a Christian brings up many interesting thoughts because we are constantly tempted with the things of this world that bring about so much pain and suffering and death and often result in us sinning. We don't seem to let go of the ice either. For example, one study I read by the Barna Group shows that 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admitted to viewing pornography at least once a month. One study I read concluded that Baptists had the highest percentage of obese persons in their sample. And then just think about the simple things in our lives like how much TV we watch per week or how much time we spend entertaining ourselves compared to maybe how much time we spend in our Bibles. I wonder what that number looks like. Maybe an hour of entertainment per an hour of Bible study or maybe it's 10 hours of entertainment per one hour of Bible study. Maybe our personal block of ice or our temptation is something altogether different. But whatever they are, we need to understand that the results of us giving into temptation can lead to plunging off the falls, as the poor seagull did. It's important for me to make a distinction between temptation and testing in that one has good intentions and one does not. Temptation is used by Satan to overcome a person's faith, while testing is used by God for strengthening faith. One example of God testing people is found in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you, meaning the Israelites, shall remember that the Lord your God 
led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God will test his people, and this is going to happen to us as Christians from time to time. God will put things in our lives that are going to require us to have faith in him, to trust in him. God tests us to make us stronger. Satan, on the other hand, will tempt us to question that faith, to lose our trust in God. Satan is on a mission to spread evil. And it's important to understand the difference because God does not use temptation. James 1, 13 and 14 say, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. God loves us, and he would not tempt us into sin because God hates sin. The Bible says, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. And so the Apostle Peter gives us, Christians and believers, a warning as it relates to the wicked, wicked one, <clears throat> and that is to be sober, to be vigilant, because the adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And just in case you missed it, God is good and sometimes tests his people and tests their faith. While Satan is evil and he will tempt them to give up that faith. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. This is the account of Jesus being tempted by the devil. As we go through this account, keep in mind that this evil one is willing to tempt even Jesus, the Son of God. And so don't be surprised in your lives that this evil one will be willing to tempt you. This passage illustrates for us some very important information. As we look at these verses, we're going to see how Jesus was tempted. And we're going to see how Jesus responded to those temptations. We're also going to look at a couple of principles within these verses, and we're going to see how they apply to us when we are tempted. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. The phrase, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, means that afterward or following the event right before this one. So looking back in chapter 3, we see the account of Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River. This baptism, if you recall, was done by John the Baptist, who initially didn't want to baptize Jesus, but had been preparing the way, as it were, for Jesus' ministry. And so when Jesus asked John to baptize him, John said, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. He was sort of perplexed at the idea of baptizing the one who was mightier than him. But Jesus said to him, permit it to be so for now, because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The famous pastor and author, John MacArthur, said Christ here was identifying himself with sinners. He will ultimately bear their sins. His perfect righteousness will be imputed to them. This act of baptism was a necessary part of the righteousness he secured for sinners. 
And that, one, it pictured his death and resurrection. Two, it prefigured the significance of Christian baptism. Three, it marked his first public identification with those whose sins he would bear. And then four, it was a public affirmation of his messiahship by testimony directly from heaven. The last two verses in chapter three, directly before Jesus was led by the spirit to be tempted, say that when he, meaning Jesus, had been baptized, obviously John complied with them, right? When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 16 explains that just as soon as Jesus came out of the water, he saw the spirit of God coming down from the air above where heaven had just been opened and settled upon him. And then verse 17 states that God then declared, this is my beloved son. Jesus has just been introduced to the world as the royal messianic son of David, as referenced in Psalm 2-7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is the son of God as declared by God himself. After his baptism, after the spirit of God rested on Jesus, after God declared to the world that Jesus is his beloved son, after these events, then, chapter 4, verse 1 states, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice here that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The same Spirit that had just come upon him has now led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's important to clarify one more time that even though God is going to allow these satanic temptations to take place, he himself, meaning God, is not the vehicle of temptation. The obvious question that comes to mind is why? Why would God allow Jesus to be tempted by the devil? And the answer is because Jesus was a man. He was a human, and essentially, he was like us in a very physical sense. Jesus, being human, was able to sympathize with weakness. He was able to be subjected to weakness just like us. Hebrews 2.7 say, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This son of God had to be tempted by the devil because if he's perfect and does not sin, then he alone will have the ability to restore the broken relationship between God and sinners. But because Jesus was also God, he could not sin. He alone can destroy the devil's power and save the lost. Hebrews 2.15 says he will free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. God allowed Jesus to be tempted because he, God, determined it was necessary. As Christians, we are all subject to being uh, tested by God and tempted by the devil. 
You see, God is constantly giving us the ability to become stronger and more faithful through the various tests we go through. I'm tested often on my own devotion to God. Will I surrender my entertainment time to study his word? Will I trust that he knows what's best for me and for the people that I love or for this nation? Will I commit to fulfilling the Great Commission as he told me to do? But I'm also tempted by the devil through his deceitful and wicked ways. He tries to lure me in with enticing suggestions of selfishness through things that aren't good for me, like triple chocolate lava cake. (laughs) Sometimes I just feel so weak, like I can't do anything right or I can't seem to stay in control. Sometimes it makes me tired. Sometimes I try and I try, but I notice that the devil loves to attack when I'm feeling weak and tired. Notice Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. And verse 2 says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So he's in the wilderness. And he's been abstaining from all food. And typically, it only takes about two to three hours to feel hungry after your last meal. Jesus has not eaten in 40 days. And the text says he was hungry. And I'm thinking it's probably an oversimplification. Um, I have actually done fasting, intermittent fasting, some juice fasting. um, And it's really not that much fun. And and I'm actually not very much fun to be around. They use the, the word hangry. Um, to describe me when I do those things. One of the goals of fasting, by the way, in the Old Testament was to display mourning to prevent God's wrath. Um, however, in the New Testament in general, it's an outward act of, um, ex- uh, that expresses an inward humility towards God. Jesus has deliberately fasted to demonstrate his humility and total dependence on God. Many professionals say that severe symptoms of starvation begin around 35 to 40 days of not eating, and death can actually occur between 45 and 61 days. Obviously, this would vary from person to person. But the point is, a person who does not eat for prolonged periods is much, much weaker than they would normally be, mentally, physically, emotionally, from the lack of nutrition. Jesus has been out in the desert for over a month has not eaten any food, and as a result, would not be at his full capacity for physical strength. And I would imagine that he would be experiencing severe hunger pains and various side effects associated with that. At this point, in his weakened condition, the devil shows up and begins to tempt Jesus, expecting this tired and hungry man to give in to his carnal desires And as we're going to read, the devil is not going to stop after one attempt, but he's going to continue to tempt Jesus three times. And three times we're going to see Jesus overcome that temptation by relying on his faith in God and using God's word to combat the devil. Verse 3 reads, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Notice the word now. So once Jesus is at his physically weakest point, now the tempter shows up. 
he comes to Jesus, and he first brings up his relationship to God. If you are the Son of God, and then tempts him with the very thing his body is craving, which was food, and suggests that being the Son of God, he must have the ability to turn stones into bread. The evil one is attempting to exploit Jesus' intense hunger and tempting him to use his divine abilities to serve himself rather than God. Remember that just 40 days and 40 nights ago, God himself declared Jesus his beloved son. And his spirit led him to this point. It's fair to assume that Satan knows this. And so he's not questioning if Jesus is the son of God but rather trying to manipulate the Son of God. Jesus' body is craving food, and Satan is essentially saying to him that since you are the Son of God, you are able to feed yourself right now. So do a miracle and do it. Save yourself. I can relate a little bit to this type of temptation in that food is kind of a difficult thing for myself and for a lot of people. I consider myself a stress eater. I've been actually driving home to have dinner, but because I was 30 minutes away, I've literally swung into fast food places to grab something really quick. It's embarrassing to say out loud sometimes, but it's true that a little annoying voice that will pop into your head sometimes, it'll say something like, it's going to take so long to get home and you're starving. Look, There's a Sonic right there. Just swing in, grab a deep fried chicken strip. You know you love them. But unlike me, Jesus has actually been hungry for over a month. And Satan tempts him to misuse his power to satisfy that hunger. But, verse 4 says, but he, meaning Jesus, answered and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice Jesus says, it is written, and then quotes a passage from Deuteronomy, making the connection between what's going on here and what Israel experienced in the desert. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3 say, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus understood that he could trust God to take care of him. Jesus understood that God loved him, And that he does not need to perform a miracle to establish that fact. Because God himself has declared it. Remember, God said, this is my beloved son. And therefore, Jesus did not need to turn anything into bread because God allowed him to be hungry. And God would provide for his needs. He doesn't need to do anything. Something Israel probably should have realized during their 40 years in the wilderness. And without skipping a beat, the tempter goes at Jesus a second time in verse 5. And six, which says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, sat him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands 
They shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now, this is where it gets a little bit intense. The devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle is somewhere on the top of the building. I don't know if anybody really knows for sure, but one article I read stated that the most accepted location is the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount. This would have been where the royal entrance was um, and Solomon's porch met overlooking the Kidron Valley. Um, Notice the picture. In the time of Jesus, the height from this location into the Kidron would have been around 450 feet. Um, Essentially, he's way up there. I mean, he can see all of the city. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, uses that phrase for the second time, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he, Satan, quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12 and says, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot. However, he did omit the second part of the verse. Verse 11 says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Essentially, the devil is attempting to misuse Scripture by taking a verse that states God will take care of his own, suggesting that because God has promised to do this, it's okay to cash in on that promise. If you are the Son of God, just throw yourself off the building and let's see if God fulfills his promise and saves you. And then verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6 and verse 16, Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massah. This essentially means do not provoke God. On the surface, it just seems like a really stupid thing to do, to provoke God. In Exodus 17, the Israelites had just moved from the wilderness and camped at Rephidim, but they lacked water and the people were beginning to get agitated and grumbling. The Bible says that Moses, or they were actually grumbling at Moses, and they asked him, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. Essentially, they lost their trust in God by not getting what they wanted when they wanted it, ultimately testing God by questioning whether or not he was among them. Basically, the devil is tempting Jesus to test God. Throw yourself down and make God save you. No, Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus understands that demanding a miracle from God is not trusting him. Demanding anything from God is not being faithful. It's actually provoking him. And provoking God typically leads to his anger. Jeremiah 44.3 Because of their wickedness, which they have committed, to provoke me to anger, and that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know, they, nor you, nor your fathers. Jesus trusts God. These temptations brought on by the devil are not working. Perform a miracle and feed yourself. Jesus said no. 
I will not misuse my power. I trust God. Then the devil says, God promised to save you. So throw yourself down off of this building and let's see him keep his promises. Jesus said, no, I will not test God. I trust him. At this point, the devil doubles down in verse 8 and 9, the third and final temptation, which says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan has just offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is a very interesting offer because the world is filled with sin and not glory. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned says the Apostle Paul. So whatever this picture of the world was that the devil showed Jesus, it was a manipulated version. I imagine the imagery must have been amazing because seeing a world filled with glory would have been something amazing to see. Remember, Jesus is tired, hungry, and weak from being in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights with no food. And to see this image of a perfect world, to me, would have been amazing and very tempting especially if feeling the way Jesus must have been feeling in that condition. But notice Jesus' response to the third and final temptation in verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, this is amazing. At first, Jesus tells Satan with authority to leave his presence. Away with you, Satan! Exclamation point. You see, first and foremost, Jesus understands what his mission is. And it is certainly not to take any preliminary glory upon himself, but to serve mankind through his godly ministry. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, to restore that which is God's. Notice Jesus paraphrased Deuteronomy 6.13 and 14. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. The devil's offer had a price of worshiping him in place of God. Again, unlike the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus is not going to trade his trust in God for anything. Especially something that demotes God and promotes something else. In this case, Satan. And then notice what happened next in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. First the devil left Jesus after being commanded to do so, and then angels came and ministered to him. The same verse that Satan manipulated, 91, or excuse me, Psalm 91, 11, and 12, which says in part that God would give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, has now actually been fulfilled. Not by throwing himself off of the building, but by remaining faithful to God. It happened the way God wanted it to happen, and it happened in God's time. One of the most difficult parts of being a Christian is learning to put our desires away and to put God's desires first in our lives. But we can. 
Just as Jesus has shown us, we can overcome temptations. When we do what Jesus did and we trust God. Let's recap and see if we can pull together a couple of principles from these verses. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And as soon as he came out of the water, the heavens opened and God declared Jesus as his beloved son. And the spirit of God came upon him. And just as soon as Jesus was declared the son of God, the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the devil came to tempt him. Satan tempted Jesus three times. First, tempting him to be selfish. Second, tempting him to provoke God. And third, tempting him with glory. After overcoming temptation, the devil left Jesus, and God sent his angels to minister to him. Principle one, all children of God are subject to God's testing and the devil's tempting, just like Jesus. I can tell you this, when I first became a Christian, I was so excited to have received Jesus in my life. I was so excited to finally understand what it meant to be a part of a family that did not focus on my mistakes, but rather focused on my love and commitment to God. Everybody was so happy. I remember the day and the feeling when I said yes to Jesus, but I don't remember anyone telling me that life was actually going to become more difficult. I guess I assumed that with God on my side, life would just be peaches and cream, but that really wasn't the case. I mean, in the beginning it was, but I think that was probably mostly due to I hadn't actually started living for God. Once I started living for God, denying things that I once promoted, trying to get closer to God through the Bible and daily prayer, things started to get a little bit rough. And then when I started sharing the gospel with people, it seemed like, it seemed like Satan wouldn't leave me alone. Constant attacks, questioning my commitment. Questioning my desire. There were some days I thought I was going crazy. I remember thinking to myself, man, you're a bad Christian. You're not good at sharing the gospel. Look at all the mistakes you make in your life. How can you share the gospel? Look at all the mistakes you make. Just leave it to the professionals. I've suffered a lot in my life. And at one point, I thought for sure I was going to lose touch with reality. But I trust God. You see, when I became a Christian, I became a child of God. And this is true for all Christians. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, received Jesus, to him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. No matter what people are going through, you can trust God like Jesus did in the wilderness. You can trust God to give you what you need, and you can trust God to fulfill his promises. And you can trust God just like you did that moment you realized he was real. If you want victory over temptations like Jesus, then we need to know what is written. Which brings me to the second principle, which is the word of God is the key 
to overcoming temptation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, For all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Jesus used scripture to combat the devil's attacks, and we can do the same thing. First, we need to know that God has inspired this book, the Holy Bible. God gave us this information so we could learn about him and about ourselves as it relates to him and this fallen world. We can see the consequences of not trusting God throughout the book. And we can see the rewards of trusting him, most notably eternal life. We can find out what God likes and does not like. And we can worship him the way that we were meant to when we spend the time to get to know him. A couple of examples. Maybe you are a woman and you're thinking about getting an abortion. You hear that little voice in your head regurgitated from the endless lies of a fallen world that say to you, you are too young. You can't take care of a kid. Just get an abortion and pretend this never happened. And you can do all the things that you've always wanted to. Satan might say to you that you can have the whole world if you'll just get an abortion. Well, Deuteronomy 27, 25 says, Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And then just so we're clear, an unborn baby is a person. Maybe you're a person considering divorce. You hear the little voice in your head that says you guys have just grown apart. He doesn't love you. She doesn't respect you. They're not really pretty. They're not very handsome. They're just dragging you down. What a loser you married. You can do better, just get a divorce and start over. It'll be easier. You deserve to be happy after all. Well, Matthew 19.6 says this about marriage. So then they, meaning the married couple, are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Maybe you're a man struggling with pornography. You hear the voice in your head that says, at least I'm not cheating. At least you're not acting out on lustful desires. At least no one's getting hurt. Well, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Someone is being hurt, and it's you. It's your heart. We as Christians have to ask ourselves every day, do we trust God? Or do we think he made a mistake? Maybe we think we could do better. The Bible says in Colossians 1.16, For by him, by God, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. You can trust God. He is faithful and he is good. And he will come through for you. Maybe not the way that we want. Notice when Jesus overcame temptation and the angels came to minister to him. I didn't read that they brought him steak and potatoes. He was still hungry. But he got what he needed. Trust God. 
and trust his word, and we can overcome even the most difficult tests and or temptations. I read this story called Holding On to Earth, where there once lived a peasant in Crete who deeply loved his life. He enjoyed tilling the soil, feeling the warm sun on his naked back, and he worked the fields. And feeling the soil under his feet, he loved the planting, the harvesting, and the very smell of nature. He loved his wife and his family and his friends. He enjoyed being with them, eating together, drinking together, talking, making love. And he loved especially Crete, his beautiful island. The earth, the sky, the sea, it was his. This was his home. One day he sensed that death was near. What he feared was not what lay before or beyond, for he knew God's goodness and had lived a good life. No, he feared leaving Crete, his wife, his children, his friends, his home, and his land. Thus, as he prepared to die, he grasped in his right hand a few grains of soil from his beloved Crete, and he told his loved ones to bury him with it. He died, awoke, and found himself at heaven's gate, the soil still in his hand, and heaven's gate firmly barred against him. Eventually, St. Peter emerged through the gates and spoke to him. You've lived a good life, and we have a place for you inside, but you cannot enter unless you drop that handful, uh, handful of soil. You cannot enter as you are now. The man was reluctant to drop the soil and protested, Why? Why must I let go of this soil? Indeed, I cannot. Whatever is inside those gates, I have no knowledge of. But this soil I know, it's my life, my work, my wife, and my kids. It's what I know, it's what I love, it's Crete. Why should I let it go for something I know nothing about? Peter answered, when you get to heaven, you will know why. It's too difficult to explain. I'm asking you to trust Trust that God can give you something better than a few grains of soil. But the man refused. And in the end, silent and seemingly defeated, Peter left him, closing the large gates behind. Several minutes later, the gates opened a second time. And this time, from them emerged a young child. She did not try to coax the man into letting go of the soil in his hand. She simply took his hand. And as she did, he opened, and the soil of Crete spilled on the ground. She then led him to the gates. A shock awaited him as he entered heaven. There before him lay all of Crete. Trust in God. He will not let you down. Trust in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for your word, Lord. You have given us all the necessary tools to learn about you and to learn what we are supposed to do here on this earth, Lord. You have given us so many examples of those who have trusted and those who have not, and we understand what the consequences are of not trusting you, Lord. And I pray, I pray that every heart in this building today would just expand their heart for you, Lord, that they would trust you in everything that's going on in their lives, whether good or bad, Lord. I pray that they would give it to you. You are an amazing and a good God. 
and we're so gracious to have you. We're so gracious and so grateful, Lord, that you sent your son here to save us. Thank you, Father. In his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.